Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I invite you to follow in whatever version you have with you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. The gospel. The word gospel in the New Testament language was first used to describe a reward given to someone who served the emperor for bringing good news. Then it came to simply mean good news. It's a perfect word to describe the story of redemption we know in the Lord Jesus Christ. As this word worked its way into English, it was first known by the word Godspell. Some of you remember the musical, which was not exactly accurate to say the least, but Godspell then was contracted into the word gospel. We have a too small appreciation for the gospel, the word itself. It's very simple. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. And on the third day, he was raised again according to the scriptures. I wish I could have a one-on-one -on -one with everyone here today. I would prefer that to a large crowd of people. So, Please think of it as I'm talking to you and you are dialoguing with me internally as we consider what is the truth of the gospel of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's a reference to the Old Testament. I hope you noticed when we read Psalm 22 to begin our day of worship. How beautifully that describes the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And please understand, that was penned by David a thousand years before Jesus, the Son of God, Messiah, came to fulfill every aspect of that prophecy. We read as we prepared for the Lord's Supper from Isaiah 53, one of the more explicit statements in prophecy of who the Messiah would be, what He would be like, what He would do. 
And as we read a portion of that Isaiah 53, we saw how accurate it is. Christ died for our sins. The whole idea of sin is spelled out so beautifully for us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without exception, every human being apart from Jesus Christ has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, after Adam, inherited a sinful nature. And we don't have to be taught how to sin. Think about your own children. Did you have to teach your child to be selfish? No. You didn't teach him to steal. You didn't teach her to lie. We come by it naturally, do we not? This is why in part, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Bible talks about us before we receive Christ as natural persons. People devoid of life because of the presence of sin in our lives. Perhaps you're wanting to know, give me a definition of sin. And in the book of 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the Bible says, all wrongdoing is sin. One of the translations says, sin is lawlessness, which begs the question, what law do we break? It's the law of God found most concisely in what we call the Ten Commandments. The first of which is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second is, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. That's idolatry. Sometimes maybe you find it hard to know whether you put other gods before the one true God. And you probably don't have an idol at home that you bow before and worship. Some of you might. But what we do know is the Bible helps us understand what constitutes idolatry. Let me give you one example in the interest of time. The Bible says greed is idolatry. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you just had to have it? That is greed. And that is idolatry. That's breaking the second commandment. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We usually limit our association with taking God's name as a swear word or Jesus' name as a swear word. And certainly that would constitute taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. But one more subtle way in which I have found myself taking his name in vain goes back to something which Jesus says. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. I'm good about throwing the name of the Lord around. The Lord this, the Lord that, the Lord the other. But many times I don't do what He says. When I fail to yield myself to the Lordship of Christ exhibited in my obedience to Him, I break the third commandment. The fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We no longer are obligated to keep the Sabbath day after Christ raised from the dead, it was just a short while until the church established the first day of the week as opposed to Saturday, as we would call it, or Sabado, as the day of worship. We need to take that to heart. Having a heart that finds its rest in Christ and sets apart a time of our lives to worship the Lord 
focusing on him. The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, by the way. If you're a child living at home and you disobey your parents, you are sinning. You are breaking God's will for your life. Obey your father and mother. This is what God wants us to do. And if we have passed the point of being under the roof of our parents and we're on our own, so to speak, we are to be people who continue to honor our parents. If you've dishonored your parents, you have committed a sin. The sixth sin is you shall not commit murder. You say, I'm good there, Mike. I haven't killed anybody yet. I've threatened to do it a time or two, but I haven't done it yet. Please remember what Jesus says about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if a man has anger in his heart against another person, that person has committed murder in his heart. Jesus took an understanding of sin to a deeper level, didn't he? It begins in your heart. In the book of Mark chapter 7, Jesus talks about that all sin comes from inside and it works its way out. Not all of it gets outside. You shall not commit adultery. Some of you have committed physical adultery. More of us have committed mental adultery. We've undressed women in our minds, men. We have done things that are out of keeping with God's will by immersing ourselves in pornography and lusting. We've broken that one. Most males have anyway. The third of the second part of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, you shall not steal. I remember my only time that I stole something. I stole some money from my father. And it wasn't much. It was just enough to buy a popsicle when the popsicle man came in the neighborhood. But my father, being wise as he was, and a man who loved God and consequently loved me, I've had a penalty to pay. I can only remember two times in my life when he spanked me, but that was one of them. It left a lasting impression. You know, when I take something which is not mine, I have broken that commandment. The ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness. Now that seems in our minds to be limited to telling a lie. And there's no such thing as a white lie. A lie is a lie. Regardless, it's a lie. And we all, I would imagine, most of us at least, have been guilty of breaking that law. Lastly is, you shall not covet this is the one which Paul chooses in the book of Romans chapter 7 to, to describe his own struggle with himself, his flesh as he calls it. And that means just to want another man's wife or to want another man's car or to want another woman's house or her wardrobe. It's that kind of thing. And when Paul chose that, he chose it because he knew that's one which begins really in the heart. Now let me pause. Have you passed the test? Are you perfect? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
the gold standard, the standard which God uses for admission into heaven, not to mention into his kingdom in this world, is to be perfect. Boy, that eliminates us all, doesn't it? And to add to that, in the book of James chapter 2, the Bible says, if I break just one of the ten, I'm guilty of having broken all of them. None of us can get off the hook when it comes to this matter of sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He died physically. I wish I had time to go into the details of the physical difficulty of the cross. Difficulty is too weak a word. There's really not a word to describe it. It was brutal. It began with a beating, with what would be considered a cat of nine tails, which was studded with pieces of metal and pieces of sharp bone, 39 lashes, probably two different soldiers would have whipped Christ. These manly men, one at a time, whipping him as he would be handcuffed, as it were, to a, stump, to a big post like this, bent over so that there was room between the post and his body. And when the lashes were given, the threads of that awful tool wrapped around and were ripped off. And then the other one, can you imagine what that did to Christ? Unreal. And then he had to bear his own cross. He was so weak he could not do it. He would not have borne the entire cross as we see it, but the patibulum, the horizontal part. But even at that, that was a heavy piece. And we know what happened on the Via Dolorosa, do we not? What happened? Jesus collapsed under the weight of that. And a man was chosen from among the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and he took it to the place of crucifixion. Jesus, when he arrived there, was laying spread eagle on the ground and spikes five to seven inches in length were driven first through one wrist. We typically see pictures of the nails through the middle of his hand. That was not the case. We know from careful study of historical records about Roman crucifixion, it was through this area. There's a slot there, but that slot goes through many nerves. It was excruciating as Jesus was crucified and then as he was lifted up and the patibulum was put into a slot at the top of the cross and his feet were put together like this and one spike driven through. Once more, the searing, burning pain. Some of you suffer from neuropathy. You think you have it bad. Think about Jesus in that situation. Jesus suffered. He was unrecognizable if you did not know it was He. The prophet Isaiah, as we read, proclaimed that. He had a crown of thorns, had been jabbed down into his head by Roman soldiers as they made fun of him. And Jesus, for hours, six to be exact, labored to breathe. He would have to muster all the pain he could, power he could, and endure the great pain as he would lift his body up to inhale and then he would exhale up and down. And remember, it was a wooden cross that he died on. 
and his back was in shreds up and down. And people who observed crucifixion wrote about how bugs and insects would come. Does it annoy you when you have some insect around you? But there was no way to get them off. And then Jesus, at the end of that time, gave up his life. Most medical scholars who have studied this carefully would say that Jesus died of two causes. Hypovolemic shock, which is the type of shock when a person loses a large amount of blood. Probably that kind of shock from anywhere from a quarter of blood to a third of the blood Jesus had probably lost in that horrific experience. And remember, Jesus was no sissy. Jesus probably was in tip-top shape. He died in part by shock. In addition to that, he died of suffocation. That was the way many who died on the cross died. Jesus died an awful physical death. But he was not the first who had died such a death, as awful as that was. He died an emotional death too, in a sense. When he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this to his closest friends who had fallen asleep. He said, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Jesus was suffering deeply emotionally. Some of you have suffered and maybe even today be suffering from deep emotional pain. It's real, isn't it? Doctors sometimes cannot find a physiological reason for a person who is suffering this kind of pain. But it's real. Jesus suffered that pain and spiritually this is the worst. In Galatians 3.13, the Bible says, Christ redeemed us from our sin, from the curse of the law rather. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law our inability to keep it perfectly. We were cursed by it becoming a curse for us. Do you know who carried that cursing out on Jesus? It wasn't the Roman soldiers, nor was it the Sanhedrin, although they played a part. It was God himself. God the Father killed his own son. Read the Bible in order that you and I might become children of God. He died for our sins, and the Father put the brunt, the weight of your sin upon Jesus. Christ was buried. That can easily be glossed over. It's part of the gospel. Why do you think Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes that? He was buried. Well, I have my reason to believe it was because when Joseph of Arimathea who had a freshly hewn tomb and he was a member of the Sanhedrin he was a closet believer in Christ a closet disciple but all the events led him to come out for Christ and he went and got permission from Pilate to take the body Pilate said yes you can do it and another member of the Sanhedrin Nicodemus remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, whom Jesus called the teacher of Israel. 
to whom Jesus said, unless a person is born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That Nicodemus, and they came. These men were steeped in the traditions of Israel. They had access to the Talmud, which was a book that was a matter of describing what things meant in the law of Moses and other parts of the Old Testament and how to live that out. There were very careful instructions included as to how to prepare a body for burial. They had a limited amount of time because it was almost sundown and they had to get the body prepared and the tomb sealed. But they took as much care as they could. They would have cleaned the body of Jesus. I can only imagine how they wept, brokenhearted to see what had happened to Jesus. They would have cleaned his fingernails. They would have worked on his matted hair, matted with blood. They then took strips of linen and made a pasty substance that had a wonderful fragrance to it and wrapped it around him in mummy-like fashion. They didn't do that to his body, what the Egyptians did, but you get the picture. They would have known if Jesus wasn't dead. You can't handle a body that's dead without knowing it when you're doing that. There was no life left in Christ. They were eyewitnesses to this. And then the last part of the gospel, and this is many times downplayed a bit, maybe even thought to be less important than the cross. No cross, no resurrection. We know that. No cross, no atonement. But the Bible says in Romans 4.25, no resurrection, no sanctification, no justification. The resurrection was absolutely necessary. In fact, a careful study of the book of Acts shows that in every sermon preached in the book of Acts, the resurrection is central. Jesus Christ is alive. He is alive today. And immediately, as we saw from Matthew chapter 28, there was a plot hatched. Probably they had anticipated that it's possible that this man from Nazareth, this hillbilly Galilean prophet, this renegade who had said he was going to on the third day raised from the dead, maybe he might, or at least there'd be an effort to seem that he had. And so the guard comes and tells him, He's gone. So here was the first trick that was used. Tell people that the friends of Jesus came and stole him. Now that's quite odd, isn't it? Where were all of his friends after he was arrested? All the men booked. There were a few women at the cross. John the apostle showed up after he had run away too. There was also the suggestion as an explanation for the disappearance of the body of Jesus that not only did his disciples steal that body, but perhaps the priests themselves stole the body and moved it. Well, that's a poor argument. All they had to do is produce the body and the whole notion of Jesus being raised from the dead was gone, right? Others have said that Mary and her companion, when they went to anoint the body of Jesus on Sunday, the first day of the week, they had 
elements in their hands to help anoint him. And they say, those who would say the resurrection is a hoax, they would say, well, she went to the wrong tomb. Now, let me make it clear. The tomb was in a private place. It wasn't in a cemetery where there were lots of people buried. It was a brand new tomb. And then there are those who would say, and this goes back to the importance of knowing that Jesus was buried. It's a theory which has come to be known as the swoon theory, that Jesus actually didn't die. He looked like he was dead. But after his body was placed in the tomb, in the cool of the tomb, after three days of resting, he was rejuvenated physically. Well, go figure. Men have been known to die for a lie that they thought to be the truth. But who would die for a lie knowing it was a lie? All of the apostles, less Judas, died deaths of hardship. John is the only one who lived and died a natural death, but he was in exile for several years. The others died martyrs giving their lives to share the gospel of Jesus, to take it to the ends of the earth. Thomas, the one who is known as the doubter, he actually went as far as southern India with the gospel. There's a church there in that region which bears his name. The empty tomb, those who had deserted Jesus came back and followed him. Now in the moments remaining, I want to personalize this message. For whom did Jesus die? Well, let's look at verses 5 through 9 again. He appeared to Cephas. That would be Peter. Then to the twelve. We know who that would be. That's a general name for the apostles. Judas was not there. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, what is Paul saying? Hey, you can find somebody, maybe several people, who could tell you what they saw when Jesus appeared. And it wasn't an hallucination. You could go to the 12, and they will say, he came to the upper room after he had died. And he said to us when we were saying, it's a ghost. He said to us, just flesh and blood. Is it a ghost? And he had them to touch him. And his flesh was warm. And they could squeeze his arms. And they could see that there were bones supporting that flesh. So they knew he was alive. Of course they did. Let's go a little further here. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul's talking about himself, of course, because I persecuted the church. I was not fit to be called an apostle. Think with me in the remaining moments. Who is the resurrection for? It's for all who have disowned Jesus. In order to disown another person, one must once have been closely related to that person. 
Cephas, Peter, he disowned the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been close to the Lord. In Matthew and Mark, he talks about how he had left everything and he had followed Jesus. He was a disciple of Christ. He sold out, but in the moment of trial, he disowned Jesus. The seeds were sown for his disowning at Caesarea Philippi when he scolded Jesus, when Jesus was talking about the impending crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection. They were sown there. He elevated, that is, Peter elevated his own wisdom above that of Christ's. You ever done that? It's seen in his deserting Jesus in Gethsemane and the desertion began before the guard came into the garden because remember Jesus went in to be alone and he said, you guys hang out here and pray. Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And he comes out and they're asleep. He was one who deserted then and then he really deserted. He followed Jesus from a distance. May I say this? If you are following Jesus from a distance, this message is for you. Come home. Get up close and personal with Jesus today. Trust Him to be all that He wants to be in and through you. He was at the fire, remember, and He's warming His hands. If we were to go to the 20th chapter of John, when Jesus appears to several of the apostles on the Sea of Galilee, when they get ashore, they notice that He is cooking fish on a fire of charcoal. Only one other time in the New Testament is the word charcoal used to describe a certain fire. It was in the courtyard of Caiaphas where he was warming his hands with worldly people and he, he denied that he knew Christ. He denied. He cursed and swore but what's good news is he repented, didn't he? He got right with the Lord. It's not too late if you've disowned the Lord. You are away from the Lord. The Lord brought you here today to hear this. If you don't hear anything else, understand Jesus wants you back. On his terms this time. Not on your terms, on his terms. And then... He died for the doubters. James was his brother. Some people say Jesus didn't have brothers. I beg your pardon. Look at Matthew 13, 55. He had four brothers. James heads the list, which means he was the eldest. And then Joseph, and then Simon, and then Judas, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, and then sisters. We know he at least had six half-siblings. Six and the Bible tells us about his brothers in John 7, 5. Not even, not even his brothers were believing in him. That hurt Christ, I know. Not even his brothers. And James would have head, headed the list. There was no hint of hero worship in the home for big brother. Familiarity does breed contempt in many situations. Sometimes we become too familiar with Jesus. We doubt Him. Somebody here is a doubter. Well, look, Jesus is alive. He's raised from the dead. He raised from the dead in order that He could save you and me from our sin. 
There's salvation in no other name except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What difference did resurrection make to James, this brother? In James 1, the book that bears the name of the brother of Jesus, he introduces himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Quite a turnaround for James. He also is found to be in three different places in the book of Acts, the leader of the church of Jerusalem. He was the chief elder there. And then according to Josephus, the historian of Rome and a Jewish man himself says that this same James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned in 62 AD. He too died a martyr's death. Are you a doubter? I think of the verse in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, where Paul writes, if they had known that he was the Lord of glory, they would not have crucified him. And lastly, this whole matter of the resurrection is for those who despise Jesus. Paul is such a one. He describes himself as a violent man in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He hunted followers of Christ down like dogs, like animals, dragging them away to judgment and death, both male and female, the book of Acts tells us. And then he was arrested by the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. In his hand, the apostle Paul had a letter of certification that he could go to any synagogue in Damascus, anyone who had become a follower of Christ and still associated with the synagogue could be taken into his custody and pay a high price, maybe even death. And do you remember what Jesus was saying to him on the road? He said, why do you persecute me when we are ugly to other believers? We're really doing it to Jesus. What difference in Paul's life? Well, read the New Testament from persecutor preacher, no longer a man who was so full of himself, he couldn't say one sentence without making reference to some accomplishment in his life. But he was a man who said near the end of his life, I will not presume to speak about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Until we see that sin isn't merely immorality or idolatry, but independence Whatever is not of faith is sin. Faith is my saying, I depend on you, Lord, for everything, for my salvation, yes, but for my life. This gospel is a gospel of grace. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. My Lord, would you bow your head? Has the Lord spoken to you today about the need to believe the gospel that you are a sinner and you need to give Christ control of your life. Jesus is speaking to you today. He wants you to turn your life over to Him. Listen to what the Bible says. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. In the privacy of your own heart right now, would you pray that prayer? Lord, I want to confess you as my Lord. I want to give my life fully to you now. 
And I believe that you have been raised from the dead. Forgive me, Lord. Come to live in my life. Give me eternal life. Amen.